there to sing and help lead us in worship. Our older kids can head out with Brother Will and Brother Dylan at this time. So, uh, now that those boys are out of here, I'll tell you what I really wanted to tell you. And uh, a lot of times I say, don't say anything to them. I want you to say something to them, okay? I want you to. Um, so, you know, this is really Ethan's first, uh, this was his first sleepover with friends. He's been now to two, two guys' uh, house and spent the night before, but this is the first time he's had a group of friends come over uh, that weren't cousins to spend the night with him. And so this is a big moment. He turns nine years old. Uh, he turns nine on Monday. So I was trying to decide, you know, what, what can we do and stuff. And so Laura went out and she bought the box set of the Indiana Jones movies, the Indiana Jones movies. thought young, young boy loves adventure, kind of be uh, a rite of passage here. We'll let them watch Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the very the very first movie, and it's rated PG, uh, which okay, so pretty good movie. And uh, but there's two scenes in it that I that I knew I'm not going to let them watch this. And one, there's a scene in that movie where Indiana Jones and his girl are they're on a boat and they uh, they don't show anything, but they're just you know they're they're uh, they're pitching woo as the old folks would say. They're pitching woo at each other and they're spitting their game and uh, stuff. And and so I thought I'm not going to let them watch that. And uh, at the very end, there's a really, if you've never seen that movie, there's a really, really scary part at the end that involves the Ark of the Covenant. And I was like, I'm not going to let them watch that ending part or not, or the, either or they won't be able to go to sleep. So uh, during the middle of the movie, you know, I've kind of been paying attention and stuff, and I, I was doing some other things, but it got to the part where Indiana Jones and his girlfriend are, are, are talking lovey-dovey, and I went in and I fast-forward through the movie. And you would have thought the end of the world was about to occur when I did this. And uh, they were, no, we want to hear what they're going to say. We want to know. What's, we want to see him kiss. We want to see him kiss. And uh, no, boys, you're not going to, you know, no. And so I fast-forwarded through. And then, I, and then we, you know, Owen, a little bit younger, we, we didn't let him watch it. We let him do something else like, you know, the, the adventure excitement part. We thought just a little too much for you yet. And uh, so he was in another room. So I went back in with Owen. I was hanging out with him other than this, this was my one job to fast-forward these two parts. And I went back in, and Owen and I were in the room. And lo and behold, uh, one of the boys, Gabe, he, he comes busting in the room. And he said, go back and rewind that. We need to know what happened. Isn't it like us when there's something that God knows we really don't need to see or know or be exposed to or have knowledge of? Isn't it like us? Isn't that the work of sin to so compel us to think, I've got to see that. I've got to know that. I've got, I mean, this looks good, right? Uh, with the fruit in the garden, that's what the enemy did. He convinced him, this looks good. And uh, man, this, I, I, I want to know this, and i got to know that. And so when you leave today, you can give him a hard time about wanting to Wanting to see the lovey-dovey stuff. But then at the end, like that, now the real scary part at the end, when I fast-forwarded, they were ready. Like they were screaming and yelling, oh, that's so scary and stuff. And so then they went on and played for the rest of the night. And then it, be it became bedtime. And you know how it is trying to get five boys in the same room to go to sleep. 
uh, this is an ordeal here to do this. And, and so like from 1130 to midnight, they would be quiet. And I kept telling them, be quiet, be quiet. And finally they got quiet for a few minutes. And I thought, all right, they're about to go to sleep. And then boom, it all, it all burst out loud again. And I actually, this time I yelled for Laura. I'm like, go in there. And uh, Ethan and Owen were sharing a bed. I said, go in there and lay down on Ethan and Owen's bed and uh, get those boys to be quiet. And so she opened the door, and, and she can give you more details about this, but she opened the door, and uh, this, is, this, is, this is what I heard, and she can, she can tell you, but opened the door, and I heard him say, well, apparently one of them got to talking about uh, ghosts and demons, and you know how boys are, the five boys are. Start talking about it, and they're like, we got scared, we got scared. And uh, was it Ethan that prayed for them? And they said, but we got Ethan to pray for us. We got Ethan to pray for us that we would be okay and that the Lord would take care of us. I tell you, the Bible does tell us that we are involved in a demonic warfare. In some of your families, in some of your homes, in some of you as individuals, the Bible makes clear that what you have been going through, that there is a spiritual dimension, there is a spiritual warfare to this. And over and over again, the Bible makes clear that if you are depending on your own strength to win this war that you are engaged in, you will fail. But when you know that Jesus' blood was shed for you, when you know that you can pray in the confidence that God's Spirit is guiding and directing you and that the Lord has won the victory, then you know what? Whether you're, whether you're nine years old or whether you're 90 years old, when you can trust in the Lord Jesus and you know He has provided to you the peace that He can bring to your heart. Listen, if you need peace in the midst of the chaos, say amen. So we've come today to hear from God's Word. And we want to listen to God's Word. And um, reminded this morning, Andrew Carnegie, I don't know if you're familiar with that name. Some of you will be. Andrew Carnegie was the wealthiest man in America at one time. He came to America from Scotland when he was a small boy. He did a variety of odd jobs. Eventually, he wound up as the largest steel manufacturer in the United States. You can imagine all the things being built in America as it's a growing country and all these cities that are booming. And he's the largest steel manufacturer. So you can imagine at one time, he had 43 millionaires on his salary. 43 millionaires worked for him. In those days, a millionaire was a much more rare person than now, and conservatively speaking, in Andrew Carnegie's day, a million dollars was the equivalent to $20 million in our day. And this man who started from the bottom ended up having 43 millionaires on his payroll. A reporter asked him about these 43 millionaires, how he hired them. And Carnegie responded to the reporter, and he said, those men were not millionaires when I hired them. He said, those men were not millionaires. They made their millions working for me. They were not millionaires when I hired them. They've become millionaires as a result. And the reporter asked him, said, well, how did you develop these men to become so valuable to you and your company that you could pay them this much money? And Carnegie gave a great response. Carnegie replied and said, these men have to be developed the same way gold is mined. When you go mining for gold, there's several tons of dirt that have to be removed to get to that ounce of gold. 
But when you go looking for gold, you don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't really mind the dirt. You don't pay attention to the dirt. What you do is you focus on the gold that you are uh, trying to get to. And in the process, you remove all this dirt as you strive for the gold. He said, when I hired these men, I looked at them with their flaws and their inabilities and where they were at. And I realized when I look at them, I'm not going to just see their flaws. I'm going to see that spark of gold within them that I believe can become a very productive member of my organization. Now, uh, for those that do sports, right? Like Brother Randall does sports, and, 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 and he can tell you, right, that when you're coaching a team, and, and Randall's coached little to big, and when you start with young players, what do you do? I mean, they have all kinds of flaws, but that's not what the focus is. You see what is their ability, and then you help them remove the flaws. Yeah, you got to remove the flaws. you got to point them out and help them deal with them. But what you're really focused on is that potential that you want to unleash. He says, same way with millionaires. you got all this dirt, but if you're going for gold, what you're focused on is the gold, and you just move the dirt out of the way. Listen, today we have flaws, and we have warts, and we have blemishes, and we have sin in our life. But I want you to know that the Lord God has said because of the blood of Jesus, He's going to remove that filth and that dirt from your life. He's going to wash you White as snow. God is in the business of taking the dirt in your life and removing it. And there's a one-time act in which he declares you righteous. And then you spend the rest of your life growing in sanctification. And what is that? It's the removal of this dirt as he forms you to be the disciple that he desires you to be. Listen, if you are glad that God sees the gold in us and not just the dirt, say amen. Knowing the old dirt in my life. The older I get, the more amazed I am. The Lord God looked at us, His creation, covered in the filth of sin. The more I struggle with some things, the more that I think some things I've got licked, only to see it rear its head again in my life. I am thankful that the Lord God saw something in His creation that he said, I will not leave you in the dirt. Well, this morning we're going to see how the Holy Spirit guided the apostles to raise up leaders within the church that the Lord God uses in this process of developing us to be the kind of church and the kind of believers that we need to be. So I want you to go to Acts chapter 6 this morning. Go to Acts chapter 6 this morning and go to verse 1. And we're going to see how in this church that is growing... And developing how the Lord God raises up leaders, particularly deacons in this case, but the principles really should be true for all Christians, especially all leaders. We're going to see how the Lord God raised up these leaders to help the church be what it needs to be, to help individuals experience within the corporate body the the presence of the Lord the way that all people uh, need to. So Acts chapter 6, we're going to look at, Verses 1 through 7. Now we've seen how uh, the devil is attacked from the outside over and over again in the early church. You've been with us in this series. He's attacking over and over again the outside. There are some believers that have allowed the temptation of the devil to lead them into sin. And we saw what happens to that. Now we're going to see just the, uh, what happens when change occurs. Like what happens when things begin to change. And we're going to see that today. How the Lord God dealt led the church to deal with some change. So chapter 6, verse 1. In those days, 
Uh, in the days where the Jerusalem church is growing and, and new disciples are coming in, in those days when the numbers of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring, uh, a disagreement, a complaint, uh, a difference of perspective, however you want to phrase it. There was murmuring that started. And this murmuring, who is it between? The Grecians against the Hebrews. The Grecians were arguing against the Hebrews. Why? Because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. So uh, as the church would, would minister to widows, which it was called to do, uh, and the Bible kind of makes clear if you have family that can do that, then really the responsibility first starts with family. But there are some widows that that's impossible. And the Lord God says when family cannot do that, the church has a role to play. And so he says there are these widows that were there, and the Grecians felt like, hey, we're being neglected, and the Hebrews are being taken care of. So the twelve, the twelve apostles, the leaders of the church, called the multitude of the disciples unto them. So they have like what we might call one of the first church business meetings. They, they, they call this big gathering of the disciples uh, together. And they bring them together, and this is what they say. They say it's not reason or it's not reasonable, it's not good, that we should leave the word of God. They said our job is to keep preaching and proclaiming this word and bringing it and making clear and explaining what Jesus has done, right? Because remember, Jesus had taken them after the resurrection. He had taken them through the Old Testament and showed him how he had fulfilled these things. And they said our job is to go out and explain this word and explain how Jesus is the center of this. And they said it's not good that we stop doing this. Leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look you out among yourselves. He says, tells, they tell the disciples, choose out seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. Man, when God brings unity to a church, if that's good, say amen. I mean, they got a lot of people, a lot of people. And it says it pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and uh, Nicanor, and Timon, and uh, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They, they, they call out these men, right, these seven guys, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed... They laid their hands, they set them aside for that ministry. They showed by laying on the hands that we're setting them aside through that. We've also seen through the, through the laying of hands, that's one of the ways, and there are different ways in the book of Acts, that's one of the ways that they signify that the Holy Spirit is involved and the Holy Spirit is moving. So they lay hands on for this ministry. They're also demonstrating through this that they, they need the power of the Holy Spirit for this ministry of deaconship. So they, they lay their hands on them, verse 7, and then what happens? Because of this, because of what? Because of this arrangement that they work out. What happens? The word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And check this out. A great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, sometimes we forget that if you were with us a few weeks ago, and this is why sometimes it's good to preach through books of the Bible. We don't always do that, but we do it sometimes for reasons like this. If you were with us a couple weeks ago, we saw that when Peter and John went before the Sanhedrin, which was their kind of senate, that Gamaliel, remember that? Gamaliel, remember him? They were going to just kill him. 
put an end to it. And Gamaliel, one of the Pharisees, stood up and said, don't do that. You need to wait, and you need to see if this is of God. Because if it's of God, you cannot stop it. And, and remember Gamaliel listed some men that had come along? And Gamaliel said, those guys all failed. They, it didn't work for them. And he said, so if not of God, it's going to fail. But remember what Gamaliel, in, in, in uh, wisdom that would align with a lot of what the Word of God says, Gamaliel said, you need to pause, you need to wait. Because if this is of God, there's nothing you can do to stop it. And this little verse that we might skip over, we might skim over, lets us know that Gamaliel was right that it was of the Lord God, and a great number of the priests that are part of that group have now been obedient to the faith. Man, if you're glad that God used Gamaliel to cause him to pause, which apparently led to the salvation of many within the priestly class, if you're glad for that, say amen. See how God's word works? Gamaliel says, if it's of God, you can't stop it. Apparently a little bit of time goes on. And the, the ice breaks. And there are those within the priestly class who realize this is correct. This is right. Jesus is the Messiah. And so you can see, as we're going to see in a moment, next week you're going to see, in a couple weeks to come, this persecution is going to rise to a whole nother level. But as we roll into the next couple weeks, you need to understand that I think that little phrase at the end of that verse put there by the Lord God to let us know a clue why is the persecution going to go to another level because it's not going to just be the common everyday person that's going to start to become a Christian there are those within the priestly class who are now embracing Jesus as Savior and this means that all of society is going to get messed up and going to get warped and the last thing the Sadducees and the last thing the Pharisees the two groups that control the country the last thing they need is this new movement coming in and messing up the nice little arrangement that they have made with the Romans. So you're going to see, well, like, while all of a sudden does it really, really start ratcheting up? I think our clue is right here. There are many priests that are starting to come to faith. Verse 8. And Stephen was full of faith and power and did great wonders and miracles among the people. They have laid hands on which in this book many times is a symbol of the Holy Spirit's power. And we see that just as Jesus was able to enable the apostles to go and do great things and amazing things in some way, now those that aren't even part of the twelve are being brought into this amazing work and they're being shown that the work of God is not just for a few select, but actually God is going to move through many. And so many great wonders and miracles, this guy Stephen is a part of. He's a man of faith. Power. Holy Ghost power. What a blessing when we have godly leaders in the church. What a blessing when there are what we would call lay leaders, which just means your average everyday men and women that are sold out to the Lord, that recognize they need the hand of God in their life and are committed and faithful to the work of the Lord. We buried one this week. And the reality is, the man that we buried this week, Roy Bilbrey, our church has turned over so much in the last seven years, I would say there's probably half to 60% of his people in the room. You never met Roy Bilbrey, you don't know Roy Bilbrey, but let me tell you about Roy Bilbrey. Roy Bilbrey was a World War II veteran. He fought his way through France with the Lost Battalion. Get online and look up what they went through. 
Look up what the lost, and you can just imagine, lost battalion. They didn't know where they were. What does a group of people have to do to survive? When, 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 when your superiors don't know how to communicate to you in the middle of fighting the Nazis, you can imagine. Go, go look it up online. Brother Roy Bilbrey was a World War II veteran. Fought his way through France with the lost battalion. He was a longtime member of this church. Even as he could barely walk, and his wife's mind was being ate away by dementia and Alzheimer's, they would, they would hobble in Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Mr. Roy had been a deacon in Indiana before they moved back here. And at the funeral this week, they talked about how Brother Roy just read his Bible. Just he was a constant Bible reader. And I'm sure he honestly, who knows how many times Roy Bilbrey read his Bible through. By the way, you would never know that because Brother Roy was a man of few words. And I can't say one time as a child, as adult, I can't say one time that I ever knew Roy Bilbrey to ever bring any attention to himself. Just the kind of guy he was. In fact, you might, you might sit through a service. And he's the kind of guy that you might wrongly assume things because he probably just sat in the service, occasionally might give a little amen, and you might have thought, well, well, there's nothing to this guy. Wrong. Sometimes I wonder if Roy Bilbrey had been through so much with the lost battalion that there really weren't words for him to say very much because he had seen things that so few of us have ever seen, and God willing, we will never see. He's a very quiet man. But his family will tell you, Brother Roy just every day read the Word of God. And even at the end of his life, he's a 90-something-year-old man, has to move to North Carolina so his wife can go there and die with their family. And they know that when they leave. And uh, he's far away from home. And now he's not taking care of his children. They're taking care of him. And at the funeral, one of the son-in-laws told that one night, Brother Roy would switch between families. One night he woke up. Well, he didn't wake up. He'd stayed up. It was midnight, and the son-in-law hadn't gone to sleep, and it was midnight, and he heard somebody moving around. And it was Brother Roy, and he was in the bathroom, and they told at the funeral that he was moving around the bathroom. He came out of the bathroom. He had finished shaving, and he put his clothes on for the day. And uh, the son-in-law said, he goes, Mr. Roy, what, what, are you, what are you doing? And he said, well, I've gotten up. I'm ready to start the day. And uh, he said, do you know what time it is? And he looked at his watch. He goes, it's 6 o'clock. And he said, no, it's midnight. It's not 6 o'clock. He said, Mr. Roy did, I guess, what he did every morning. He said, well, I guess I'm already up. And he walked over to the chair and he sat down. The son-in-law said he thought, what's he going to do now? And he sat down and he pulled his Bible out. And he opened it up. And he said at midnight he did what he would always do in the morning. He just went ahead and got his day started in the word of God. If we need faithful lay leaders, say amen. We need them. And so we see here in today's text, we see this guy named Stephen. And the spotlight's going to go to him a little bit. And the reason the spotlight's going to go to Stephen a little bit is because he's going to be the deacon that's going to show us 
uh, what it means to serve the Lord God and what it costs us to serve the Lord Jesus, what it means for a lay person to carry their cross, just as Jesus said to do. So we see in this morning, man, we need lay leaders and we need you. Men and women, we need you to have the characteristics. We need you to beg God, to ask God, to engage in the disciplines of the Christian faith that will enable you to be the type of people that God will use to do great things for His kingdom. Let me just share four things that we need from leaders in our church. You say, I'm not a leader. Listen, God wants you to be a leader. He wants you to develop. And and leaders come in all shapes and sizes, and they have all types of ministry. So don't just look at me and say, well, I can't ever be a pastor. That's all right. There's plenty of work to be done that doesn't require to be a pastor or a music leader, but we all need to aspire to these qualities. So why does God raise up these leaders? And I'm going to give you four reasons. And, and I'm not, you know, I'm not Mr. Super Smart Guy. There are lots of pastors that have preached on this. And uh, this is going to seem sort of, well, that's just kind of evident. But sometimes God needs to remind us, hey, don't forget the things that ought to just be sort of self-evident to you. Number one, why does God raise up lay leaders? Why does he raise up leaders in the church? Number one, to help solve problems. And let me say this. He raises them up to help solve problems, not create problems. All right? Pastors, lay leaders, musicians, all of us, the goal is for the Lord God to move through us to solve problems, not create new ones. Look at verse 1 again. All right, look at verse 1. There's a murmuring. Grecians against the Hebrews. Two different groups in the church. Who are the Grecians and the Hebrews? Most likely, these two groups are Palestinian Jews, the Hebrews, and the Grecians are those Jews that have come from other parts of the world. They have lived other places and are now within Jerusalem. So within this church, you've got two types of Jews. And actually, if you just do a a simple study of Jewish history, you will quickly find out that really ever after the diaspora, the Jews of different places, whenever Jews that had lived in other places come back to Jerusalem, there's this tension. There's this tension. And that, that continued on in the life of Israel long after Bible times. These tensions between those that are there and then Jews that come back. There are cultural differences. There sometimes are language differences. They've, they've experienced life differently. And so there are these two groups of Jews that probably didn't talk alike. Now, they both had Hebrew but different uh, dialects. Now, I know things are changing in Cookville, and we're becoming a more cosmopolitan city, uh, but if you can remember the day that, say, a, a, a northerner would move into Cookville, and they would talk, and you could not understand them, if you remember those kind of days, say amen. Some of our older folks, they know, same English language. We can't understand you. Now, some of our northerners that have moved down here are thinking, are you kidding me? It's you guys that don't speak English. Well, they may all speak some Hebrew, but they don't sound alike. And uh, they probably don't live exactly alike because they've come from different places. I mean, you know how it is in Cookville. When it snows like it did last week, and the Lord God blesses the children to glorious be out of school all week when there's only a tenth of an inch of snow still on the ground, those of us from the south say, praise the Lord for his good gifts. And those from up north go, morons. That's what they do. Now imagine if there are real problems in the church, though, between these groups. Imagine it's not something as silly as how much snow is on the ground 
Imagine that there are real issues in the church because you're talking about widows that don't have people to take care of them. They need the church to help them. The Lord God has commanded this to be done. And imagine that it's within the body of Christ, not just society at large. These two groups begin to have issues. By the way, you can imagine those that were from around Jerusalem or or had lived around that area, the Hebrews, you can imagine they've probably got more contacts. They know how the system works a little bit better. Those that are the Grecians would not. And so it, it, it doesn't even have to be intentional. The Bible doesn't say it's intentional. Sometimes just things happen for various reasons where one group is being treated better than another group. The other group is not being treated fairly. Maybe, bracket this, maybe some of the Hebrews didn't think the Grecians should be treated the same. They didn't grow up around here. They didn't contribute to this. They haven't pitched in. Uh, Are you kidding me? They ought to be thankful for anything they get from us. And the Holy Spirit moves and makes it clear to the leaders, no. In the Lord God's church, what we're going to discover in this book is not only is there not Grecians and Hebrews, in the Lord God's church, there's not even Gentile or Jew. There's only those who have been washed and saved by the blood of Jesus and those who need to be. That's it. The only two groups there are. So why does God raise up lay leaders? And what does God want from you in your life? He wants you to help solve problems in the church, not create them. What's the second thing God does? Very practical message today. What's the second reason that God raises these leaders up? He raises them up to help solve problems. He also raises them up to help identify the problem. Right? You've got to know there's a problem before you can do something about the problem. Look at verses 2 through 4 again. Then the twelve called the multitude of disciples unto them and said, It's not reason, it's not reasonable, it doesn't make sense that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look you out among yourselves, look among you, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. They said, Our priority is to do this. So we need some other leaders who can see these things and they can identify, okay, what needs to be done. Now, one thing that I'm horrible at, and, and, and my wife doesn't amen a lot, but she might amen this. Like, I'm horrible at, I can't really match clothes, and I can't decorate, and I can't do any of that kind of stuff. And so sometimes in the church, right, I mean, th- it's good. It's good to decorate some things to show, hey, this is a lively place, and we're alive, and we care about this, and so we want that to be reflected in some decorations that we do. But do you know the last person that you want to be in charge of decorations? Bing, 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 bing. At the fall when we had the beautiful pumpkins and all this stuff up here that you guys were commenting on, uh, the lady that did that was doing it during the week. And, of course, I walked in, you know, because I want to be, I want to say thank you. I mean, I may not do it as much as I should sometimes, but if people are working the church, want to say thank you. So I walked in to just say thank you. And, and uh, she asked me, she, she pointed at the pumpkin thing, and she said, uh, anything I can do to make it look better? And I just started dying laughing. I can't do that. I don't know about that. That's not really something that I'm equipped or or know. And the fact is, in the church, there are many things that one person cannot do. It. That's why one person doesn't need to be the only voice in a church. 
the one person who needs to know and be in charge is King Jesus who communicates through his word. But we all have gifts to bring. And so we need leaders in the church to help us prioritize and to know and to identify this is what needs to be done. The apostles couldn't do everything. I can't do everything. Brother Mark can't do everything. Brother Cecil can't do everything. My sister Brenda with the WAC cannot do anything. Pastors in the New Testament church were responsible to preach and to pray. That apostle ministry that they're doing is primarily going to move into a pastoral role. They're kind of what we may call the lead teacher of the faith, but they can't teach everybody. They can't instruct everybody. They can't give one-on-one attention at all times. Even the widows is important. Now, this is as important as this is. And James, you're going to be told that what is, what is pure religion? He says, what, what is true religion? One of the things he says is, how do you treat the widows and the orphans? But they can't do that all the time. And so they say, actually, we need to raise up lay leadership in the church so that these can continue to preach the word and proclaim the word. And so these can be focused on the ministry of prayer for those who are in life and death struggles. So what do leaders do? Leaders need to help us set the priorities. Now, deer hunting season is winding up, and uh, it's, it's finishing down. And talking of priorities, I read about a group of friends who went deer hunting this year. They went deer hunting, and they paired off in twos for the day. There were four of them, and they paired off in twos. Kind of like how Tucker took, Tucker took Ethan uh, deer hunting. They went off together, and, and he helped him do that. Well, these, they, they paired off in twos and went deer hunting, this group of four. And two of them went off. And when the day was done, uh, two hunters were already back at the truck. And uh, they were waiting on the other two to come back. And only one showed up. And the one showed up and he had a big old eight buck on his back. And he was staggering in with his big eight point buck that he had. And he, and he walked in and they said, where's Harry? Well, we sent you out with two. Where's Harry at? And the guy said, well, uh, Harry had a stroke. And he's a couple miles back up the trail. They were stuck. What? Harry had a stroke. What in the world are you doing here? Why did you leave Harry back there and carry the deer back? And the guy looked at him and said, well, I was pretty confident that if anybody finds Harry, they're not going to steal him. Thank you for that giggle, whoever that was. I don't know if you're laughing at me or the joke, but I'll take that. The Shirens are back there laughing. I appreciate I told a dud of a joke a couple weeks ago, and Aaron Shira told me, he said, I was laughing until nobody else did, and then I decided I better shut up and be quiet. Priorities. Nobody's, I mean, they're going to take a deer and get the meat. They're going to leave Harry there. I mean, Harry's had a stroke. Priorities in life. That's that little silly story to remind us there are priorities in the church, and there are things that we need to do, and there are things that we need to be aware of. And we need leaders that can raise up to help us see what is the priority and how do we deal with this. By the way, and you already know this, the pastor's not always right. There have been times that I've thought one way. And then I've gotten in a room with people that are actually more knowledgeable about the subject being talked about. And I've thought, you know what, I'm actually incorrect about that. You know what, these men, these women's idea is actually better than the idea that I had because they have knowledge that I do not have. If you are glad that when God calls a church, he calls a group of people to help us be what we can be together, what we can never be alone, if you're glad for that, say amen. And you better fight to protect it. Leaders, you better fight to protect it. You better make it just a heartbeat thing that I will fight to protect what God can do in a church, or more the, the, the people singing together today, the people that are on the, uh, that play the instruments, the people in the back. That takes a group to do that. And that really, that's a microcosm of the church. It takes a group to accomplish this. It cannot, it cannot just be one person. 
It will not work. They'll either burn out or they'll get angry and begin to project that on other people within the church. The Lord God has given us a body and he has raised up leaders in the church and we need them to help solve problems and we need them to help identify priorities. Third reason that God gives them these leaders, he gives them leaders who will serve faithfully. Verse 2 and 3 again, look what it says. Verse 3, Wherefore, brethren, look you out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business. They're going to have to be faithful. We're going to see later in Acts that they better be faithful because the ministry the Lord God has called them to is going to cause more than a few of them to lose their life. By the way, in this country, When, not if, the day comes that they come for the pastors, you better have solid lay leaders because who are they going to come for next? You believe that, pastor? I believe with everything in me, you better not appoint Billy Bob to be a deacon in the Lord's church because he's related to somebody's family or because he's had a little success in business. You better not do that. When you choose a deacon, you better say the day they come for us like they came for the apostles, this is going to be our spiritual leader and it better be somebody you can look at and say, this is a person that I can believe like Roy Bilbrey is immersed in the word of God. I don't care about the show. I don't care about the antics. I don't care about the degree they have or don't have. What you better determine in your heart is I better have a leader that can take me through the fire the day they start coming for us. If we need that kind of leadership to rise from this generation, say amen. We need it. Because they're going to put pressure on you. They're going to push. There's a work of the devil, this demonic thing that God is doing in families, that God is doing in individuals. He's done it in countries all over the world. And we can see in our own country, and by the way, it's been this way before, and it'll be this way again. We see the pressure, and we see it growing, and we see the things of God in some ways moved into certain corners where they say, you can discuss that here, but not here, 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 here. And what we know is coming next is one day they will come to that corner and they will say, we don't want you doing it there either. And what you better determine is that you have been striving in your young people and in your middle-aged people and in your elderly people among everybody that you are trying to develop people of solid gold, not Billy Bob to lead the church, but a man or a woman that has counted the cost of what it means to serve Jesus. Seniors, look at me. I've seen the pain in some of your eyes when you have invited family members to church. You've got them to church. They've had a momentary crisis and they get right with God and then they disappear. I have seen the pain and hurt in your eyes when they quickly fade away because what they really wanted was a quick fix and not the dedication that the Lord Jesus demands of us. But can I tell you something, especially seniors, I want to say this to you because some of you have prayed and begged and pled and done everything you can. There's some moms and dads, you too, who you have begged and you have pled and you have done all that you can do. Can I tell you something today? You've done all you can do. 
They are responsible for what they do. You just keep being faithful as you run this race. God sees the hurt. He sees the pain. He knows the conversations you've had. He knows what you've done. Young people, it's time for some of us to step up. To step the game up. And realize that it's not really a game at all. That this is a struggle for people's lives and eternal destiny. There, now, this is really interesting. Go back to verse 2. This, I, this is one of the most interesting to me things that I didn't know studying for this, this week. The twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It's not reason or reasonable or wise that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Did you know the word serve? Literally for those tables is the same root word that the word deacon is later going to come from. Did you know that? Now, maybe you knew that. Now, deacon, and I knew that, I knew that, I knew that deacons literally mean serve, that it's an action word. They are to be about the act of service. I knew that, but I didn't know that verse 2, that literally the serving tables, that's the same Greek word that deacon's going to come through. Now, I've heard a couple explanations before this about why deacons, why that word literally in the Greek means serve, what, what it means. One thing I've read is that, uh, it, in fact, what it literally means is that that word for serve literally means that you're going through the dirt. Like whatever you're doing, whatever it is you're engaged in, it requires of you literally to get down almost and get your nose in the dirt. So when it says serve, because it's not really, and I want to stress this, because we give this responsibility to deacons, but it's secondary in our church, not primary. All right? The primary role of deacons is not the budget. The primary role of deacons uh, is not to look around and say, well, I think this is the best thing to do with the facility here or there. We give that to them, and the reason we give that to them is because we believe if they're the kind of people they need to be, that's the kind of people we want in conjunction with our trustees making those kind of decisions. But that's not where deaconship starts. Deaconship starts with a man who gets down, by the way, later you'll read about deaconesses, and that may mean women serving women there, leading there. We read about, the, what does this mean? The first, it means one who gets down in the dirt and sees the work and the ministry that must be done, and they serve. And they serve in a way that if it requires even getting down in the dirt, that's what they do. Can I tell you something? I'm not sure as a pastor, I ask the Lord God, God, I'm not sure that I'm living up to what you call me to be. And Lord, I don't know if our leadership, by the way, not just deacons, because I think this applies to every leader. Lord, I don't know if we're where we need to be, because Lord, are we really willing to see our ministries? I've got to get down in the dirt and the grime of life. And my job is to get down with the lowest of the low and serve them. Boy, if you want a pastor and leadership like that, say amen. That's what that means, that serving connotates the idea that you're down in the dirt. You're down there in the nitty-gritty. So, I've read that one, one, some people say this is kind of maybe a servant who puts his nose to the dirt and does the work. On the other hand, A.T. Robertson, a great teacher of Greek, the last century, early part of the last century, said that through the dust, the dirt there within this serving connotates the idea that the servant is getting so fast to the job that must be done, right? So the deacon sees the person in the hospital 
or the deacon sees the couple that is struggling in their marriage, or the deacon uh, sees that these two groups in the church are not getting along, and they see this need in the church, and, it, and they're so servant-minded that they run to it. They run to go do the act of service, and in running to go do the act of service, it causes the dirt to fly up. So I've read both, that it means you get your nose down in the dirt, you're so focused. But other people say, no, that the idea of serving there, the, the dust that's coming up, is more because they're, they're, they're so engaged and running. I don't, I don't know which one is right, but I know I like them both. And I know that the truth is we need to get down in the dirt, and we also need to be able, when we look at people that are hurting leaders, we look at people that are hurting, and we look at what's going on, we need lay leaders. Not just apostles, not just pastors who see the need and run to help those that are hurting. So did you rush to help anybody this week? Did you pick up a phone and call anybody this week? God raises up lay leaders to help solve problems, to help identify priorities. He raises them up to serve faithfully. And fourthly and finally, God raises up leaders in the church to live spiritually. Look at verse 5 again. Look at this verse. Oh, my. The saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. Stephen was a spiritual man. His spiritual life gave others a north star that they could look to to see what does it mean for us as followers of Jesus to live as part of His kingdom. What does it mean that we don't first and foremost identify anymore as Grecians and Hebrews, but we identify as Christians? What will that life look like? And they have a man named Stephen. Lay leaders, listen. Too many churches think, and you guys do a great job, by the way. You really do. So when I say, I'm, and I'm not, I'm not saying that to just say it. You really do. But there are some churches where so much pressure is put on the pastor, and the pastor's wife, and the pastor's family to be something that they can not be. And I'm thankful, and for one reason that. That I want our church to grow and, and new people to come in to do the ministries that the Roy Bilberries once did as they pass off. is Because I'm going to say this, this church does a good job with how you treat my wife and I and how you treat my boys. But I have friends that are in churches that the amount of pressure, it's as if everything is riding and falling upon this one family. And that is wrong. Because listen, number one, if you do that, if you set the preacher so high up here, and you say everybody looks to him. Some people are never going to be able to relate to that because they can't get up behind a. They're 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 afraid to they're afraid to talk, or they're afraid to be outward, or they're afraid. And they look at a preacher and they think I could never identify that. We need spiritual lay people in this church, and we need them for many reasons. But one reason we need them is so our brothers and sisters that are new in the faith, so these boys and girls that are growing into men and women, we need lay leaders that they can look to. And identify with and realize, man, if that brother and sister, if they can keep pressing in the faith, then so can I. If you look in Galatians at what Paul says, and if you look in Second Peter at what Peter says Christians are to look like, you'll see words like love 
and self-control. What does it mean to be a leader? It means you show love. It means you have self-control. It means that you have a sense of joy in your life. Not that everything is hunky-dory, but that there is joy in your life, that there is peace when others are losing control, that you manifest peace. You are long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, virtue, knowledge, endurance, and piety, a total life given to these things. When you read Galatians and 2 Peter, this is the life of a Christian and what must be identified in a Christian for them to be a leader. Just take self-control. One of the things that a leader has to have, self-control. The boys played basketball yesterday. And, uh, you know, uh, now, now I told you to go bug them about the other thing. Don't bug them about this, but, but you all be able to connect with this that attend the church. You know, Ethan is your typical right now. He's your typical first child, very obedient for the most part. I mean, he's a boy, but very obedient, very, uh, in some ways, strives to please and, and this kind of thing. And, you know, Owen is just Owen. I mean, he's just rambunctious. And uh, he's got his own agenda. I mean, Owen really does. He's got his own agenda. And mom and dad can get on board or not. That's what he thinks, right? And that's why mom and dad has to set him straight. You know, we got an agenda. They're different. And so it kind of surprised me yesterday that in the basketball game, Ethan is usually Mr. Compliant. Now, now Ethan doesn't like to mess up. He's first child in that, too. He gets very embarrassed if he messes up, very, very embarrassed. But in Ethan's game, before I got there, Laura and my, my, dad, my dad were telling me that uh, there was a little boy on the other team that started yelling at the refs and started, like, just really showing out and being really ugly. And just, I mean, again, if my kids yelled at a ref like that, they would meet the agenda of the belt when they got home, you know. I mean, well, he said this boy was being just unreal. And uh, after the game, Ethan came and, and he told me about it. He was like, Dad, that boy over there, well, we stayed because Gabe, who spent the night, he played the next game. And sure enough, in the next game, that team that Ethan's team had just played, they played again, and that same little boy that had the attitude, he started pushing on Gabe and doing stuff. And uh, doing that, and so the, the halftime came around, and, and we said, all right, boys, we're going to go home and get things ready for the party. And I told Ethan, I said, go, go tell Gabe, you know, you'll see him later, because Gabe's got to finish the second half. Well, Ethan walks over, and he doesn't just say bye to Gabe. They talk for a few minutes. And so when they come back, I said, Ethan, what were you talking to Gabe about? He said, I told Gabe that that boy, that he needs to go back in there and lay him out. That's an Owen comment. So, a little conversation with Ethan. When other people lose self-control, the follower of Jesus, like Ethan, who has been baptized as a sign of a new life, that's when the dad, that's when the pastor, that's when the lay leader, whatever you may be, you don't even need a title other than Christian to tell this to somebody. Our fruit is not that we lose control when they do. Our fruit is we are controlled by the Holy Spirit who gives us peace even as everybody else loses whatever shred of control they have in their life.
out in my mind. And some of you have demonic work, things that the devil is doing in your job, in your family, in your personal life, where the enemy is trying every way he can to make you lose control. Now look, there are times in a doctor's office that you've got to push and find out what you need to push and find out. That, and that is fair. That's fair. They charge you a lot of money. <laughs> I charge insurance a lot of money. It's right to ask questions. Okay? But don't let, don't let the doctors cause you, seniors, to lose your self-control. Don't let them have that. Don't let them. Don't let them. Middle-aged people at your job, there's a lot of pressure from a lot of ungodly people who have no control and this week there will be a supernatural battle in your job and the enemy will be trying to get and plant within you some things that will give fruit that is a lack of self-control. You rely on the Spirit of God and stay in control because He's in control of you. Young people, come on. Girls are going to gossip. Boys are going to do ignorant things. And there are going to be things that you, did you amen that, Austin? Was that a hand? You gave a thumbs up like Larry over there. <laughs> Girls are going to gossip. You say, why are you picking on the girls? Because I've been pastor seven years. You know how many times I've had to deal with gossip from the boys in the youth group? They're too dumb to develop gossip to get them mad at each other. Girls are going to gossip. And boys are going to do ridiculous things, which we have had to deal with. And when that happens, when that girl gossips about you, which is a sin that God sees, and when that boy does ridiculous things that are wrong, the enemy's going to prompt you, then he's going to push your button, and he's going to say, lose control. Don't trust the Holy Spirit in this. You take control. And what happens when we take control is we lose control. And then he says, we need leaders in the church that can show them love and self-control and peace and meekness, and faithfulness, and long-suffering, and virtue, and knowledge, and endurance. I've seen a lot of people since I was a boy, in the years I was in this church, seven years I've been back, you combine those two things together, I've seen a lot of people come and go. Some have left for moving. Some have left for other congregations, and they've continued to be faithful. Okay, so not everybody who's left was unfaithful just for one reason or another. They went somewhere else. But I can tell you this. I can make you a long, long, long list of people that did not endure. going to be a Roy Bilber? Are you going to be a Fannie Mae Harris? Are you going to be one of those that pushes on for Jesus until he comes to get you? 
fall by the way. God raises up leaders in the church to help us to continue to run the race that God has called us to run. Like Stephen, who we will see in the weeks to come, what it costs Stephen, the deacon, to run this race. Will you endure? Are you a leader? Whether you have a title or not, title doesn't matter. Are you a leader that is allowing God in your life every day to chip away at that dirt, chip away? For you to be the disciple of Jesus, he wants you to be. Would you stand with me this morning? Young people, I want you to ignore the, ignore the person next to you. Young people, I want you to listen to the Spirit of God. Will you endure? Moms and dads, will you endure? Senior citizens, will you endure? If you want to come and pray this morning, listen, don't even wait for the music. Come on, you know if the Holy Spirit of God is compelling and tugging at you today. You know if you need prayer, to pray to God, to have others pray with you. If you're a leader in the church today, you know spiritually where you're at. You know today whether you're cultivating that life or whether you got the title of leader, but that's not really who you are. We get these rare moments in this fast-paced life to hear from God and His Word. Will you endure? Dear God, I ask that you would move right now, that you would speak to hearts, that you would use this time. Lord, if there's a young girl that's at a, at a moment of decision in her life, Lord, she come today and commit to you. There's a young boy today, dear Lord, that they know the struggle at school. They know the temptation to do wrong. Lord, if they would come today Lord, to have you continue to move that dirt away. Lord, you just move right now. We'll praise you and give you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.